Welcome to the Nursing and Midwifery Emporium podcast, a podcast about this nursing life. I'm Nicole Nash-Arnold from Nurse Manager HQ. And I'm Sue Walker from the Nursing CPD Institute. And together each week, we seek out interesting people to discover what a red-hot nursing life looks like. Hello, Nicole. How are you? Good, Sue. How are you? I'm fabulously well on this most glorious day. It's nice the way it's getting a bit cooler, is it not? Yeah, I love a bit of coolness. Isn't it interesting? We live in Queensland, but we strive for cool. I know, I know. It's like I sent a thing to my Victorian siblings recently. It's like it's out of the 30s. I have to get a blankie. (laughs) (laughs) See, the thing about being a Queenslander, though, we love the cool for about mm, 4.2 days. (laughs) And then it's like, okay, I'm over this. Just, you know, give me the heat back. I can't stand it. So true. How exciting. We had someone send us a message this week, and it was from a lady called Emily and she goes hi Nick and Sue I've recently found your podcast so it identifies that Emily is one clever and intelligent (laughs) and she's loving the content so she also has taste which I I think is fabulous. We're loving Emily she is our favourite. So Emily says I'd love to hear an episode that is directed towards the competent to proficient nurses the middle ground people. I'm six years into my nursing midwifery career, have worked in a range of settings, including midwifery group practice, and have recently finished a transition year into the ICU setting. A few of my friends are in team leader and clinical midwife roles, which is amazing. And while I don't regret my decision to swap settings, I've slipped back down the ladder to a newbie in my current area. Despite our clinical differences, my middle ground colleagues and I share common concerns. Lack of support for leadership mentoring. Where do we go from here? I can't deny my millennial traits. I seek new challenges, teamwork and supportive feedback and will look elsewhere if I can't get those things from my current workplace. My question is, how do we, as competent to proficient nurses and midwives, in the early middle stage of our careers, keep traction on skill development and working towards leadership roles. I know there's a retention issue with early career nursing professionals and with projections for future staffing levels looking grim, what can we do to keep our profession fresh and inspiring for the years to come? Now, Nick, I know you have researched widely on this in your work with Nurse Manager HQ. Well, this is one of the issues that's close to my heart because I think as a profession, we spend an enormous amount of time focusing on graduates, like they need so much support and grad programs and self-directed learning and offline time, and they do need all of those things. This is obviously something that I am absolutely passionate about because I've spent an enormous amount of my career talking about essentially this very topic. And I think as a profession, we spend a huge amount of time focusing on graduates, as we should, because it's a, when you come out of university, the level of work readiness can fluctuate. Um, and so grad programs and supportive programs and novice transition programs and self-directed learning and offline time and all of those things are amazing. But then the, we seem to think that one day you just pop out the other side as an expert clinician. And we seem to have forgotten the great Patricia Benner's work. Do you remember that work that she did? I reckon it was in the 80s, don't you reckon? 
I, look, I was going to say that, Nick, because I am a child of the 80s and mm. certainly she, her work started to be discussed then. Yeah, it's really amazing and it's evergreen in the concept that she talks about the five stages and to not overcomplicate things. Effectively, we start as a novice. There's a period of being an intermediate and then you end up an expert at some level. So there's the proficiency and competency in there. But if we just make it simple, you're a novice, one day you turn, you put your head above water and you think, yeah, I'm holding my own here. And you sort of spend a while in that intermediate zone and then something happens and you suddenly come out round the other side as, as an expert. And I think putting some science around what that looks like is really important for people's professional careers because otherwise they just get to the end and go, a little bit like what Emily's saying here, I don't really know what I want to be when I grow up. And so you end up at that classic truncation, which is education clinician or manager. And there's a bit more to it than that, isn't there? Oh, there's heaps more to it than that. And mm. that's the difficulty. Someone should write a guidebook. And I know that's where Benna was coming from. But when you start out in the profession, you're just trying to, you know, work out how the theory applies to what you're actually doing mm. and hope you don't look as mental as you think you are looking mm. and try and find a mentor within the group of people you've been put with that you can ask the questions that you feel too stupid to say out loud to a group. Yeah. And mm. then every day is putting one foot in front of the other. No one really teaches you how to plan or talks to you about planning your career or transitioning through various clinical areas. And I think that lack of direction serves us poorly because then we focus. I think I hear a lot of the language, I'm just going to call the the M's of the world, the Emily's of the world, the intermediates, in that they think, well, the my way to the end point must be just collecting clinical badges of honour. Like mm. if I know more about if I'm an ICU nurse, if I know I'm the ICU vent comp and I'm di dialysis and then I, I'm ECMO and then I'm in charge and there's like these clinical badges of honour because there's no other direction. And I think that's where the mistake is. I've done this exercise in a million different facilities with a million different nurses. And it's my favourite exercise in terms of exposing a couple of assumptions that nurses we make as a community. So one of them is that I get nurses, usually the senior nurses in a war, in a, of a ward or a unit in a room together and I say, here's Patricia Benner's novice intermediate expert, but let's start at the end. Like if you're an expert, say ICU nurse, because it's easy. If you're an expert ICU nurse, what is it that makes an expert ICU nurse and I put it out to the floor and they universally this conversation goes in the exact same way. They need to be ICU vent, they need to be able to have cannulate, they need to be able to do dialysis, they need to be able to understand ECMO, they need to understand gas exchange and all of these clinical badges of honour come pouring out for about 11 minutes and they just dump all of those things and they dry up and I go, there must be more to it than that. Then they start talking about the intangibles. Well, the expert ICU nurse also knows how to problem solve, not just troubleshoot a machine and get to a point and go, oh, I'm stuck. They know how to problem solve. They have gone through something where they go, 
I thought I knew a lot, but now for whatever reason, I'm standing on the abyss of everything that I don't know. And I'm okay with that. I can have difficult conversations. I can use emotional intelligence. I've got some life skills and know how to do that. And all those intangibles come out and that defines that expert. So then when I say, okay, well, what's an intermediate look like? They usually keep those clinical skills or they're achieving or almost there and all of those intangibles are absent. And that seems to make the difference between that intermediate and expert. So it's interesting that no matter whether I do it in an aged care facility or obstetric unit or ICU or operating theatre or general med surge ward, the conversation goes in the exact same way. Yeah, it's all, yes, I totally agree with you. The clinical skill of working out the, you know, the machine that go beep and boop or being able to deploy a task because an expert nurse won't believe the beep and boop machine. An expert nurse will say, even though it's giving me that reading, my assessment of this patient who's deteriorating in front of my eyes tells me there's something else wrong and I'm going to explore further. Mm. And that's the difference between the expert because if I take that expert out of that clinical area and put her in another facility in another time who uses different beep and boot machines, they're not going to maybe know how to use the machines or deploy a certain protocol that this organisation uses, but their expert knowledge still exists. Someone else can program the machines. They're still going to know the deterioration. They're and still going to be able to have the conversations and manage the environment for that person. Exactly. And that's where you start to knock on the door to the answer to Emily's question, is that the clinical badges of honour that you would achieve aren't necessarily the things that are going to get you to feel like you're expert. Um, I often use this example of when I was in theatre, I was probably five years out, so about M's stage in my career. And when I was in theatre, I was mainly orthopaedics and neuro. And at that time, we had this Mayo stand that connect the headrest that connected the patient's head to the table to keep it still if you're going to do a craniotomy for whatever reason. So there was obviously an unsterile bit that connected to the sterile bit, and there was all of this stuff. And When you decontaminated it after the procedure, there was this ridiculous procedure that you had to go through to reseal it after it was decontaminated and before it went to CSD. Anyway, I knew how to do that and there were probably, you know, staff of 200 nurses was one of a handful of people who knew how to do that. And so once people know, oh, Nicole's got to stay back and do it because she's the only one who knows how to put the seal in the Mayo thing before, like that piece of technology had a life of technology half-life of probably 18 months. That badge of honour that I achieved that everyone went, oh, Nicole's an expert because she knows how to do that, lasted me a good 12 months before it expired and I had to then chase the next new thing to keep that level of currency. Didn't make me an expert perioperative nurse, just made me know how to put a couple of seals in a device. But at that time, that was what we reward. You know, in that community, it was like, oh, they, you know, this person knows these skills and so therefore, you know, we honour the level of expertise. But actually, it was the people who could walk in and, you know, were happy to go, I haven't really scrubbed for this, but I understand the under- the principles of perioperative nursing. So I'm comfortable in giving it a go and I'm going to be safe and yeah. I'm going to deploy critical thinking or that can manage, you know, something. You know, I've went years later from managing a perioperative department to an ED nurse. I didn't know an AED patient to fall over one. So for the fact that they actually had conversations with you, which was a sharp contrast to the operating theatre, but 
those leadership skills, the communication skills, the ones that transitioned me through lots of different places. And it didn't matter what really what clinical skills I had. It was important and clinical thinking was important, but that investment and chasing those clinical skills, I think, will just, I don't think it brings you long-term joy. Mm. And certainly we need to identify that, you know, competency and proficiency in Mm. in skill application is exceptionally important. Mm. But the issue that Emily's identifying is, and the fabulous thing is with uh, nurses in early to middle age careers, they're exceptionally clever and proficient at the technology because that's their thing. They're Mm. also very good nurses. I'm not taking anything away from their people skills. Mm. Um, So they are good at what they do, but that's nursing to become the moving forward to more years under your belt and that issue of expert Mm. takes time and you can't create an expert without the time to develop those other skills other than proficiency no. with tasks or equipment. And so I think you make a good point in like anything in life, there's, it's the balance that is important and that if you just focus on clinical skill after clinical skill, you know, that's really fun and it's satisfying. But often what happens is you get there and you can kind of do everything and you go, oh, now it's not very challenging and I'm bored. And so those are the challenges around communication, leadership, knowing how to mentor, knowing how to teach, knowing how to, you know, read a room, improve your emotional intelligence, improve your resilience. They're the things that in the end, the expert nurses that could walk in to any setting and not be experts, but be proficient and safe you know, it doesn't really matter what they come from. Right now we're in the middle of the COVID crisis and I was reading about the New York, which of course is in all sorts of trouble. And so a lot of the nurses in the operating theatre, like in our country, aren't working at the moment. And so now they have become runners in the ICU nurse and they're doing supportive work. You know, these are the ones that, okay, they can't run a ventilator, but they're a really important part of the team and they're using critical thinking skills in a vastly different environment and nailing it. Yeah. And being able to give that air of confidence to the client Mm. that all is well in the world. So when Emily identifies here, and rightfully so, she, she identifies there's a retention issue with early career nursing professionals. And there there's so many variables involved in that, isn't there? Mm. Whether the, you know, profession or their experience. And it's all about experience. Mm. Um, individual perception. I assumed every person I worked with or an organisation was, you know, if this was nursing after I had completed my uh, initial training and the hospital I trained at, I thought to myself, if this is nursing, this is, you know, Mm. probably been quite a bad career choice for me. Mm. And it wasn't until I went somewhere else that I realised, no, it wasn't. Mm. Of course, I had the opportunity to be able to work with people who were clever and articulate and kept up to date and were supportive and all those things. So retention issues just aren't about Benner's model. But Emily's right. There, We have issues with maintaining new and middle people to the profession. Mm. How can we assist 
in that process? How can we mentor Mm. and encourage and how do they get the skills they need to move forward? Well, I think Emily's done something really powerful when she talks about how I've swapped from different roles and I don't regret it. But there's an air in there of, oh, have I made the wrong decision? Should I have picked something and invested heavily in it? And I think the value of playing around with different clinical settings is really important for two reasons, because it gives you better exposure and you have a much broader view about what the patient journey looks like in different settings. And it gives you a little bit more perspective around what you might like, just because you picked one thing in the beginning may not have been the greatest thing. And you can make decisions like, I don't like nursing where or midwifery, but maybe it was just you didn't like it in that department or in that context. So playing around, I think, is a really important part in the early career when you sort of try before you buy. The other thing for the rest of us as nurses who are mentoring these people is I think the experts that are out there have made some errors in that we're very focused and a little bit paranoid about the junior nurses that come in. Oh, they're junior, they don't know what they need to know, they're unsafe, they've got too many graduates. That's the whole idea that they come and we, you know, we need enough of the novices that are growing to be the intermediates so that we can grow the intermediates to be experts. So then when the experts are retiring, then there's this flow through. If you if those three categories of banners are out of whack, then then it isn't going to work. You're going to end up with problems. So the experts need to not necessarily focus so much on the novices. They're too frightened to write anything in the patient notes before checking. They won't move two steps to the left before going, is that right? Is that right? Is that right? I'm feeling uncomfortable. They'll come to you when they're nervous. It's the intermediates that are required. They feel a little bit lost and think they're like, people think that I get here and I'm meant to know, so I can't ask because I don't really understand what's happening with my patient. And I should know. I've been here 18 months or two years or four years. I should know. So... I can't go and ask and I won't. And then I then they sort of flounder. And that's one of the reasons I think we have that mid-career departure. So they don't feel supported because mm. they're not. And the experts are too busy freaking out about the graduates being unsafe and don't know what a blood pressure looks like or don't know how to put a catheter in. They're time consuming, but they're surprisingly safe because they're scared. And sometimes, in the words of Andrew Denton, They need enough rope and you need to be sitting in the background as an expert watching them flounder and then step in at the last minute. That's sometimes our mistakes are where our greatest successes are, provided we don't let people die. You're there and you're watching and you're mentoring. I think we've all been in that place. I know almost every expert nurse can talk about that one moment where they've made this, what should have and could have been a very serious error, like sentinel vent level. And they had a real come home to Jesus moment and it made them really reflect and they had that moment. Then they understood that expertise isn't about knowing everything. It's about understanding that there's a million things to know. Yeah. And once you've applied the drop in the ocean, you need to escalate. Exactly. You can't sit. The other issue I think with expert nurses is that there, there is a tendency to, you know, Oh, get out of the way. I'll just do it myself. You know, the, mm. the, the martyr mentor and the martyr mentor is, is of no use to anyone because they just spend their whole time tis tisting and staying hours after they should have gone home from shift because no one mm. can do it better than them. Mm. And then the other nurses that they're working with is, look, I'm not going to bother because, you know, they won't let me do it anyway. So I'll just let them, you know, ride in on their white charger and they can run the whole place. So within Benner's model of no- novice, 
uh, intermediate and expert. Like there's a flow of respect that needs to happen, a flow of understanding, a flow of respect. Mm -hmm. And that experts also need to understand that it is the intermediate nurses who are going to blitz the technology. Mm -hmm. And if you walked into a place and you didn't know, an expert nurse needs to feel comfortable saying, I've never used that thing before. Yeah. Show me how to use that. And that's the intermediate's turn to be the pigeon for the day and the experts, the statue, and it will reverse. But there has to be that respect. There has to be the acknowledgement that at every level we bring skills. Novices bring skills with new information because they ask the question based on new information that they may have come across that gets the intermediates and the experts thinking, Wow, I didn't know that. And sometimes the novices ask questions because they're just completely ignorant to the answer. And that means that the expert has to think back to what is the right answer. This is the way that I do it. The answer to that question, because that's the way I've always done it, because that's the wrong answer. Or is there evidence-based medicine, health, nursing principles backing why I'm doing it and can I articulate that? And that is the beauty of having novices because they're asking you why you're doing that. They're like a toddler, you know, like, mum, why do I have brown hair? Why, why, why? And novices are a bit like that. Like, why do you draw up your drug like that? Why do you approach your patient? Why do you assess your patient this way? Why did you feel like you needed to ring the doctor on this occasion and not that one? And so... There are these whole times when experts are being challenged about, is it because that's the way we do things around here or is it because there's a rationale? And that's really powerful. And the intermediates do the exact same thing in that having all experts, if, I mean, everyone thinks if you had, you could recruit brand new, you're opening a orthopedic ward, post-op surgical ward, there's a desire to get gold standard, all experienced nurses that just know everything under the sun. And you think you're going to have this smoking hot, amazing orthopedic ward where you have zero defect outcomes and just brilliant performance. But what you end up getting is expert error Mm. because a couple of experts, I had this exact situation where I investigated this sentinel event um, of a drug error by two nurses that have got 20, 30 years of experience. And so they were ordered this high risk drug. And so they walked into the drug room and drew it up. And in their head, it was Jan and Beryl. Jan went, Beryl's the most experienced nurse that I know. I don't really need to check. And Beryl went, Jan's unbelievably experienced. I'm sure she's got right. Neither of them really checked it. And they there was a sentinel error as a result. Because there's that, they, once you're so expert, you tend to cut corners. Mm. Whereas if Beryl went in there with 21-year-old brand new Amelia who's been out for two minutes then she's not cutting corners. She's not setting that bad example. And so it keeps you honest. Mm. No, that's right. And it keeps you or hopefully should keep you curious Mm. because if you get to work in that situation where you are questions, a lot of us just do stuff because that's the way I've done it. Can I give you the scientific rationale? I should be able to, but it's, you know, got lost in 15 years of other stuff Mm. being laid on top. But that's where it should keep you curious to be able to go, "Mm, okay, I will tell you why I do that because I looked it up because I knew you'd ask me the day I walked in and into here. Mm. And being, you know, an expert isn't about being queen of cardiology or queen of urology or queen of community practice. It's actually about going... I've done that so many times in my career. I actually don't really know why I do it. Do you want to do some research with me? And we'll have a look at some journal articles. No one's going to hang you up at the stake because you've gone, I really know, I've just done it for so long. 
maybe it's changed. Let's have a look. That's what an expert is, owning the mistake, having that, or not the mistake, owning your own knowledge, owning your deficits, because we're all going to have them, and that curiosity. Staying curious is really, really powerful. And the expert has the clinical confidence to be able to work within that setting. And confidence to know, maybe I'll just say to them, I don't really know. I've no idea. Yeah, that's it. That's okay. Mm. Exactly right. So that's what that whole premise that you see written about quite a lot in the journal articles about of the communities of practice, that it's not just about getting your A game and A players in and having some, it's not a competition, it's not AFL where we're trying to be this amazing thing. It's a community of practice where you've got some people that are going really well and some people that are going really not so well and that they need some support. And you've got experts that are comfortable with having those people there and understanding that that's the well-oiled machine. It's what we've been doing for centuries. I mean, pre-university, we had first year and second year and third year students with a very small contingent of RNs. And because it was the exact same, Patricia Benamotta, where I shuttled people from skill level and competency until they got to a certain point. And then we had new people fresh coming in. That's how we stop the dwindling health workforce. And that is exactly right, Nicole. And the issue is it is a team sport. Like we're not out there to be better than our colleagues. We're out there so that as a group working with our colleagues, we can provide the best possible service that we can to those people that are, you know, the recipients of that care. Mm. And that's where the respect and the acknowledgement and the joy, I suppose, should come in. You know, they talk about it takes a community to raise a child. Well, it takes a community of nurses to be able to create the environment that provides the best possible solution for the client. Mm. So Emily says here, what can we do to keep our profession fresh? and inspiring for the years to come. I think there's part of that in terms of learning, not just investing in clinical skills. And they're amazing clinicians, and that is so important because it delivers really great clinical outcomes. But understanding that there's more to being a bloody good RN in whatever context that you're going to be than just having those clinical badges, that keeping it fresh is about having a community of nurses that are happy to sit around and where the novices and intermediates are happy to sit and be mentored by their experts and go, I had this patient the other day and I stuffed it up galactically. I didn't do this. I couldn't cope with family. I was really, I got, I was tired and I was snappy and Sitting with an expert means that an expert can give you advice around what you did clinically, what you did emotionally, what you did socially, what you did in terms of dealing with other people, what you did for your own emotional care plan and how you managed your stress. If I was working in that workplace, I think most people would have a very, very happy workplace. Mm. But people that are developing from that intermediate to expert, it's clear that you need to be developing those cultural skills. And there are elders and there are people that are graduating and maturing. And that's the way evolutionary psychology has been since we were just popped out of the evolving from apes. And so we have always done that communities of practice and the tribes. Why would this be any different? And so that's how we keep things fresh and engaging. And it's not just about let's have an in-service on the newest, you know, IV pump. You know, let's have an in-service on how we 
have fun safely without being inappropriate. Let's have an in-service around, you know, how we're going to communicate better. Let's have an in-service about a million things. It's not just about the newest policy and procedure. There's so much more balance in what's innovative, what's new, what could we try, what's out there, what is this brand new thing that people are doing that's quite edgy and seems incredibly risky, but they're doing it and it seems really amazing and getting good results. And what's making people feel really excellent and what's really safe and what's really effective and whole other things we tend to invest in with a little bit lack of balance, I think. So then that relies on leadership and management, doesn't it? That relies on, as a team, being Mm. able to try and foster those relationships with our colleagues as of of respect and being comfortable to question and ask questions and to be able to talk. Mm. And it's about the leaders within that setting as well as those that are designated as managers Mm. creating an environment that that could happen. I think when we talk about leadership in management, we then go, oh, well, that's up to the numb then. And that's a really important part to go, which I talk about quite a lot as well. You know, there's a power of one. I mean, there's no doubt that a bad manager can really impact the culture and the productivity and the effectiveness and safety of a unit. So putting the dud managers aside, most of us have got some level of spectrum of, you know, an okay manager to an amazing manager. But you could have the most amazing manager with a whole stack of people that are disgruntled, disengaged over it, just there for the money so they can pay this week's mortgage, don't really care. And she can be incredibly inspiring, but if people aren't open to it, then uh, it won't really matter. And so that leadership in management is more than the numb. Every, everybody right down to the grad needs to be have some level of leadership and management because of ultimately leadership management is just critical thinking. It's just not necessarily critically thinking in the context of what's happening with this patient, but you're yes. critically thinking about what's happening with my unit, what's happening with how we engage with each other, what's happening with succession planning. And yes, that's a manager's job as well, but you need to be you know, looking for people that I might be a novice, my next port of call is intermediate. Who are my mentors and who will I trust that's safe for me to go? I'm an idiot and I made this mistake the other day where people won't judge me. You know, that that's incumbent on every one of us. So then the answer is every one of us needs mm. to focus on a daily basis mm. about inspiring those around us to be the best that they can be, I suppose. And so I think that's where Em is coming from in that she's spent a lot of time in the clinical, but she's, you know, not sure about, you know, the cross. she can feel the crossroad looming. Some of my colleagues have gone the management, there's education, there's this looming thing. And I think for when we're in that, that's the question because you can sense the end coming in terms of I will be an expert here soon and so what's next? What will keep me curious and engaged? So I think playing around with different clinical settings and playing around with different clinical roles, um, you know, there's also there's in, in charge, but there's different things like in every single, I mean, in Australia, in particularly in acute care cities, those national standards means that there is an enormous amount of committees and um, opportunities to explore the wider health service context. And that can be really amazing because you get to see the machinations of the way in which 
which our health service works. And that's important. I have to understand how patients come to us and how they're funded, you know, not intimately in terms of I need to generate a report, but understanding generally how that works means that it's inspiring. That's new areas that keeps you curious, that leads you on a path that you just didn't know existed. And I think if you ask a lot of people at the end of their career, how did you get here? They would say to you, I never set out to be here at the beginning, but I took opportunities where they led me and some of them I found boring and some of them found amazing and some of them just took me places I couldn't have known, but I just kept going with them. So you've got to be proactive in going, yeah, I'll go on the policy and procedure committee. Yeah, I'll do the infection control five minutes of hand hygiene. I mean, it probably sounds, to me, that sounds deathly boring, but you don't know where you're sitting in a community of people and you're opening your doors further and further outside just clinical badges. And you never know where that will lead for you to be able to influence in the future. Therefore, it's forms of networking, just not sadly one that comes with a glass of champagne, which is, you know, annoying. But it's still networking and you're still learning about other people, other nurses and midwives' careers, how they got there, whether that's of interest and what you thought was really boring, actually maybe really exciting. When I finished university, I thought ICU was going to be my thing and I didn't love it. And I thought, God, who'd go to theatre? Did love it. This is the exact same thing. You think maybe quality and risk you are just not going to love, but then you play around and tow the water with a couple of committees and you might find it really amazing. Mm. You might find after hours coordinating the concept of that being absolute hell on earth. But when I did that, for example, I did it was a large private hospital and I learnt so much about what other nurses did. I didn't know any, I didn't know a medical patient to fall over them and I it was had to be a quick study so that you could make decisions and how hospitals worked and how staffing worked and how bed management worked and I found that infinitely interesting and it's not necessarily where the end of my career went but I learned things that have been useful for me forever. I was curious and it gave me exposure and I know a whole lot of people and know a lot more about health care delivery in Australia. Certainly. So to keep the profession fresh, Emily, then, the synopsis would be an inspiring. The synopsis would be to dive right in, Mm. to jump in, take the opportunities that are offered, realise when to cut your losses, move on. The good thing is we're not married to a job. No. We love the profession, but not married to the job. So if you find yourself working somewhere that's not for you, move on. And don't worry about the fact that you've developed highly specialised clinical skills that when you go to a really different clinical context, you won't use those anymore because you learnt a whole load. It opened up parts of your, of neural pathways more than just that very advanced specific clinical skill. And that's, I think, a really important. It's kind of what we talked about, if you recall, when we were talking to Paul Armstrong in one of the earlier episodes when nurses are wanting to move into different specialties, they go, oh, yeah, but I'm just an orthopedic nurse and I only know orthopedics. But when you take out the clinical stuff, you know, they know how to educate, they know how to manage teams, they know how to mentor staff, they know how to clinically assess, they know how to deal with really high pressure situations, they know how to deal with deadlines. This is more than knowing how to take a post-op total hip replacement from theatre. Yeah, for sure. And the same with this. This is just don't get too hung up on the fact that you've spent X amount of time developing all of these clinical badges because it's not lost. It's not wasted. You may not use it every day, but you've learnt really powerful skills, HR skills, you know, critical thinking skills. 
and our colleagues should respect that. Mm, and that's the other thing, I think. Play around and find your tribe, find your community of practice where you've got a group of nurses that are happy to go, oh, yeah, no, I've stuffed that up as well. I've, yeah, no, when I was in your shoes, terrible, and this is how I dealt with it, and that you feel comfortable with saying, why do you do it like that? And the answer is not. That's the way we've always done it. Agree, Nick. What a fabulous discussion that Emily created. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Em. That was great to be able to dive into that. It was. There was a few rabbit holes and Mm. we swam deeply, Mm. but we had the discussion and the discussion was good. I agree. Nick, it's been lovely to talk with you. Farewell, sister. Bye, sister. Thanks for joining us this week on the Nursing and Midwifery Emporium. Make sure you visit us at the website www.nmemporium.com to subscribe to the podcast. And if you'd like to put someone forward for us to interview, go to the same website and just click on the button. See you guys. Take care. Bye.